UFO disclosure, crop circles, discarnate voices, alien abduction, ET human hybrids. What is the common element that connects all of these phenomena? According to veteran UFO researcher Grant Cameron, it's consciousness, pure and simple. But what role does this elusive yet omnipresent element of the human, and for that matter, non-human experience, play in connecting the dots to this grand mystery we call the ET UFO phenomenon? Listen to Grant's amazing string of stories he shares, and then as always, you decide. Listen, we've been, we're on. <laughs> been chatting it up with uh, my friend Grant Cameron. Well, so good to see you. Thank you for it's, having me. It's been a couple of years, you know, since we did this fantastic show. I actually just listened to it again uh, about a week or so ago, knowing that we would be meeting once yeah. again on uh, the ET influence on the music industry. And that's not what we're going to be talking about today, although there may be some elements of that yeah. we can fold in. But what a great interview. I always love talking to you because you have really traversed the spectrum of this whole field we call ufology and I love the fact Grant that you have now sought fit to bring in what I think is and we would agree I think the most important aspect and that's the consciousness aspect and that's what I want to talk about today yeah. you've been at this for a, a long time yeah. and I know you told the story about the impetus for your going from more of a mechanistic yeah. approach yeah. to uh, understanding this phenomenon to a more metaphysical uh, so I'm going to trust that. And I know all you know who Mr. Mr. Cameron is. And obviously, with everything that's been going on uh, since December of 2017, mm -hmm. uh, you've been at this tirelessly. Yeah. Uh, but again, let's. I really would like to to to, to take a shift in direction on um, the consciousness aspect. So maybe give a, a thumbnail about. And you just, by the way, gave a great talk that I got to introduce mm -hmm. Grant's wonderful talk on, and it had to do with what I call the D word, disclosure, but consciousness seems to be a constant for you and the message that you're conveying to your audience. Yeah. How did this all happen? <laughs> well, it's been, it's been a long road, and as I say in, in my career, there's very little that I think I actually chose to do. It's been these sort of synchronistic events being pulled down one rabbit hole after another. Mm. I didn't ever choose to have a UFO sighting. Uh, I was into paranormal phenomena when it started in 1975. I was interested in Edgar Casey. I was in, I'd done a study on dying patients in hospitals. Oh. Do, they, do they ever uh, have people come to visit them before they die to take them over? Does anybody ever predict their death? Did anybody have near-death experiences? And this is when near-death experiences first came out. Yes. So I looked at all these bizarre aspects. So I was into bizarre stuff. But <laughs> I can never remember having thought about ETs, extraterrestrials, anything mm -hmm. like that. And then what happens is there's this uh, town that's having these sightings, and where I, was this? This is Carmen, Manitoba, Canada. In Canada, uh huh. Yeah. And it was viral. It was like this news media was talking about it all the time. And it was about 35 miles out of my city. I live in Winnipeg, and so I said to my friends, "Let's go see what they're looking at." Uh -huh. And we didn't go. We didn't go for three months. And then the local TV crew caught this thing on the ground. And when this went on TV. I said, come on, let's go, let's go. And so we went out there, and I just always describe it. It was like buying the lottery ticket, knowing there's a chance you can win, but you're not going to win. You're not going to see anything. Everybody else can see it, but we're going to go. We're not going to see anything. We were there for an hour. Nothing happened. My friend said, we'll drive back into the town, Carmen, one more time. If we don't see anything, let's go home. I said, fantastic. It's been a total waste of time. We turned the car to go back in, and it appears from the left to the right. 
It's an object, it's plasma, it's pulsing, it's like it's alive, it's red, it's bouncing up and down, it's very low to the ground, coming right in front of the car. This is not a light in the sky, it's pretty close into the car. And I went, whoa, it was like, because I never really had any paranormal experiences. Mm -hmm. And so this was like the first one, it was like, oh, there is actually weird stuff. I, mean, I read <laughs> Edgar Casey. I'd read all the weird stuff, but I'd never actually experienced it. So I was sort of floored, took all my friends out two nights later. They went home after an hour, they said, this is a waste of time, they're going home. And they took off, I said, no, no, you gotta see this, it'll change your life, this is unbelievable. They went home and about 15 minutes later, this thing jumping around the sky, bouncing around the sky, and as it bounced around, it came closer and closer. Those flashes got closer and closer, and suddenly it was the same object I'd seen the first night, mm -hmm. and it was coming right at me. It was the second night, it was flying right at us. And it was down low, and I was like looking at this thing, and it made the turn, flew off, and I'm watching like, what are they doing? I couldn't figure out, like, what's this all about? Mm -hmm. But I was, I was hooked. I mean, as I said, I drank the Kool-Aid. I mean, I was, I was into this thing. And then when I tried to publish a book, which finally got published called Charlie Red Star, yes. nobody would publish it. And the one woman said to me, Mr. Cameron, you may believe in this kind of stuff. Count me among the unbelievers. And it was so... Among the unbelievers. Yeah. Count me. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, and so it sort of shocked me. I said, well, sighting is a waste of time. So all I was interested in that point was who knew what I... Somebody must know what that thing was. Mm -hmm. I, I don't really know that much. I'm just a little guy in Canada. Somebody's got to know. And that's when I started on this pursuit. I went after the Canadian government. I found out my, synchronistically a guy who worked in my father's office. My father was a pilot for the Canadian government. Oh. And they were, did inspections of runways and stuff like this. So there was a radar tech in his office who had a UFO sighting. He said, Ernie App wants to talk to you. He's had a UFO sighting. I said, okay. I listened to the sighting. It's just an ordinary sighting. And then synchronistically, he said, oh, if you really want to know what's going on with UFOs, you should study what the Canadian government was doing in the 1950s. I used to work for the guy. And I went, you work for the guy? And he said, yeah, he was a contactee. He was talking to aliens. They were landing in his backyard. He's going, I'm going, what, 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 what? I couldn't believe it. I was like, Wow, and so I went down that road, and I went and I flew to Ottawa, the Canadian capital, and I interviewed the woman. She was secretary to the Speaker of the Senate in Canada, and she was married to the guy. He had since died. Wilbur mm -hmm. Smith was the guy who ran the program. And then when she told me the story, oh yeah, AFA was the name of the alien, and this and that, AFA this, AFA that, and I'm going, wow, it's just like a different world. And, I, and so I gathered all the material in the Canadian government, and that was when I first got the consciousness thing, although then I didn't realize it. Okay. There was a top secret memo that was declassified in 1978 by the Canadian government. And it's a legitimate government document. They don't deny it. It's a Department of Transport document. And in that document, Wilbur Smith is very much into the UFO phenomena. He goes to the Americans in 1950, and he goes through classified channels, and he asks the American officials, what's the deal with flying saucers? And that's when he comes back, he writes this top secret memo to his boss at the Department of Transport, the Deputy Minister of the Department of Transport, and he said, I was, we were told by American officials, flying saucers exist. It's the most highly classified subject in the United States. There's a small group headed by Dr. Vannevar Bush who are trying to figure out what's going on. It's of tremendous significance to the Americans. And then what would happen 30 years later, the next line of the document would pop into my head, the next line of the document says, and we were also told by American officials that other things might be associated with mm -hmm. the flying saucers, such as mental phenomena. mental phenomena. Later on, I found out that they were doing automatic writing. Uh, Wilbur Smith was talking to this alien over. He had developed a, a radar or a radio system where he could sort of interact with them. Uh, he was using uh, contactees. He was talking to them about what what messages they were getting, and he was very much into this thing. And he dies. So that 
story led me to the former president of Penn State University. And he had 14 honorary doctorate degrees. He was the co-developer of the homing torpedo during World War II. He was chairman of the board of the biggest military think tank in the country. And he had sort of been identified as being involved with passing this material to the Canadians. So in the interviews that we did with him, he would say, look, unless you've got the mind of Einstein, you're never going to figure this out. I can't talk about it. Go study something else. You're up against the windmills. You're wasting your time, all this sort of stuff. At one point, the second piece of consciousness would come in. And this, again, would not come till my 2012 download. Mm -hmm. It would take the, Amer the Canadian government document and then what Walker said, and would put those pieces with a third piece. So the second piece that Walker gave us was he was being interviewed by a guy from Great Britain. And the guy says to him, Dr. Walker, what about MJ-12? Is there still just 12 people? And is it an American group still, or is it international? And he said, let me ask you a question. What do you know about ESP? And the guy didn't have an answer, so Walker answers his own question. And he said, look, unless you understand about ESP and how it works, you will not be taken into the control group, MJ-12. Very few people understand how it works. So that was 1991. And so we got all this material, we published a book on him, and we basically put all the transcripts of all the stuff he'd said. And he was talking in rhymes and riddles, which really didn't... Very cryptic. Yeah. Yeah. But the one with the ESP thing, pops in my head in 2012 with the third piece. And the third piece is 1993 Ben Rich, head of Lockheed Skunk Works, yes. mm -hmm. goes to UCLA to the engineering alumni and he gives this presentation on the SR-71, the U-2, development of planes and stuff. At the end of his lecture he shows a, sh a slide of a flying saucer and he makes this statement. We now have the technology to take ET home. In the audience is Jan Hartson, who is now the international director from UFON. Now, John Hartson is an experiencer. He had an experience with his brother in the backyard with a flying saucer that was only about 30 feet away, 6.30 in the morning on a Saturday morning when he was about nine years old. Mm -hmm. And he was hooked. And he and his brother were trying to build a flying saucer. And they were obsessed with how do flying saucers work and stuff like that. So John becomes an electrical engineer just to work on UFO. He's trying to figure out how the UFO things are. So when Ben makes this statement about we have the technology to take ET home, Ben says, in the question period, he says, we've discovered the mistake in the equation. It's not going to take a lifetime to do, but it's going to take an act of God to get this thing out of Congress, because it's so deep black. And so these questions go, and then he starts to head for the door, and Jan realizes, this is my chance. This is the only chance I'm going to get. He goes after Ben Rich as he's going out the door, and he said, Ben, I've studied this my whole life. I need to know Ben. How do they get here? How does the propulsion system work? And Ben turns around and says exactly what Walker said two years before. He said, let me ask you a question. What do you know about ESP? And Jan said, I didn't expect a question. So he said, uh, it means everything in time and space is connected? And Ben said, that's how it works, and walks out the door. Now, as these things oh are developing gosh. through my career, I don't really realize that, that these are all linked together. And it wasn't until I have my experience where I'm in Colin Andrews' crop circle lecture where he's talking about consciousness. Right that suddenly, boom, these things come into my head and the pieces Converges, went together. Converging, and, and it yeah. suddenly it came with absolute certainty. It was like, oh, I know how it works. And suddenly I realized what it was. And it was at that point where I made the shift from the sort of the, par the materialistic paradigm, nuts and bolts, let's measure it, let's do it science and all this kind of stuff, to this consciousness thing. And it was, again, it was like my UFO sighting. It wasn't something I intended. It was I was in the lecture. I didn't even want to be in Colin Andrews' lecture. I had no interest. And actually, the lecture was on consciousness. And his 
take on consciousness was he had been hired, Lawrence Rockefeller had given him a bunch of money. And what he was doing a job as the top crop circle guy is to find out how many of the crop circles were hoaxed and how many of them were real. Mm. And he had come up with a conclusion based on private investigators and stuff that 80% of them were hoaxed and only 20% were real. And his career basically ended. Like nobody in the UFO community said he's working for the government, he's, you know, he's a, you know, whatever. And so this was the lecture he'd given after that. And the reason I went in, because he was a high profile guy mm -hmm. and I knew this controversy and I said, well, I should go into his lecture and I should pay, pay him respect and watch his lecture. Uh -huh. So I went in the lecture and I had no interest in the lecture. And the way I, my understanding of the consciousness thing is you've got right brain, left brain. And when you can quiet the brain, people say quiet the mind, but you're quieting the left, left brain. rational, analytical right. voice in the brain. You can, when you can disassociate, when you can shut the left brain off, your right brain taps into the field and pulls back stuff. So I'm sitting there, I don't want to be in the lecture, I'm really zoning out, <laughs> I'm almost meditating. I'm just sitting there, I'm thinking, well, maybe I should go across to the other side of the river, go to the library, go for lunch. I'm thinking, you know, I really don't want to be here. And that's when it all popped through. But when Colin, his lecture actually had a, an important consciousness part in it as well. What he said was 20% were real, 80% were hoaxed. And the Crop circles we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, and, and what the, the 80%, he started to talk to people because they'd identified who these people were. When he was talking to the people who were hoaxing the crop circles, they would tell him, I was sitting there watching TV the one night, and then this thing came into my head, and I had to go put this, this crop circle down. I had to go hoax this crop circle. And the one example he shows oh, where, the, where the guy goes to do the crop circle, he gets this idea in his head, and there's women meditating in the field, the same pattern. And they're, they're there in the field while he's doing it. They don't see him. And so he gets these connections, and he says, then he comes down to sort of the conclusion, 20% are real, and the other 80% are hoax, but they're also done by the, by the intelligence, that they're forcing these people through consciousness to go put these patterns down. So there was whoa, this consciousness whoa, 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 okay. <laughs> All right, let's look, slow down. <laughs> We're getting a lot of information. This, is, this was a big one right here. I want you to repeat that. We're talking about the majority of the crop, this theory that the majority of the crop circles maybe still that we're seeing are hoax, 80%, 20% yeah. are authentic, and maybe we can go into, now we're gonna take this from, it's all about consciousness, but we'll take, I, I wanna stay on the crop circle thing. But I want you to say again, Grand, what you said about the motivation for the hoaxes. That's huge. Yeah. That, that there's some sort of a technology that's being used to incent, not incent, but encourage people to create the crop circles. Yeah, that was his impression, was based after talking to these people, that they were being driven, motivated, uh, the aliens were just using a different way to do the crop circle. They were, they were using these people through their consciousness, by controlling their consciousness, okay. to put down a certain pattern. And that when he talked to these people, there was so many of them that would tell these stories about I don't know why I did that, but I, I just came into my head and I went and I put this crop circle down. And so they're hoaxed, but they're also still very meaningful. Would this include, I always get this wrong, is it Dan and Dave? Dan and uh, I don't know if he didn't, uh, he mentioned, but as in, Did yeah, I get I those names right? Dan, yeah, okay. but I wasn't even really paying attention during the lecture. I just remember the one with the, where the, where the one was, they were meditating in the field and this guy put the same pattern down that they were doing. Amazing. And he had all sorts of other consciousness things. Like he would say, him and Bussy Taylor, the two guys that started the thing, they would go up and they would take a plane and they would, they were very, they started as very simple crop circles. And then there would be a circle and then one would be sort of a cross or something like that. And he said to Bussy Taylor, he said, wouldn't it be interesting if they put the two together 
and then they go up the next day and the two are together. There's a crop circle with the two together. So he had these consciousness things as well, where he was saying like it was almost like they could read his mind as to what, what kind of circles they were putting down. And, and Colin Andrews, if you look at his consciousness thing, mm -hmm. it's very bizarre. I mentioned it in my lecture today. Some of the stories about how the crop circle thing started. I mean, this bizarre thing where Colin Andrews is, um, uh, when reel-to-reel -reel tape recorders come out, in 76, he's got his first reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder, and he's, he's going to use it, and he, so he's got the microphone, and he's pulling the microphone across the carpet, and he's in front of the TV. The TV's going, and he's going to tape, and he turns the tape recorder on, the first time he's ever used a tape recorder, he turns on this reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder, and the TV goes, and suddenly there's an alien on the TV. Oh my God! Giving this message, a five-minute message. So he gets the entire thing on tape. He's taping as this thing's going on, and you and and I played part of it today. I played a, about two minutes of this thing. It's about five minutes long, and it's the basic message: you're destroying the world. You've got this, you know, the, the, all the oneness, the, the exact message that everybody always has. So Colin had contacts with the with the British government. He was a high-level sort mm -hmm. of communications mm -hmm. guy. What he told me after that, after this thing came, is that the British government was inundated with phone calls. And the TV network was inundated with phone calls. Like, what was going on TV for this five minutes? Because everybody's TV picked it up. So he said there was an investigation done by the British government and by the TV network. And all they were able to determine that there was two particular towers that were affected where the message was coming out. And those two towers were the towers that were directing the signal over the fields that would later have all the crop circles in. And so you get that sort of thing where you look at it and you go like, this is just almost like a, a Kafka play. Where yeah, it's, it's I was so going to say, there is a dynamic. I, I, I feel like there's, there's some sort of maestro that's just orchestrating every seemingly uh, um, disparate little thing going on over here, but it's a master coordination and consciousness is at the center of it. Yeah, that's what I did in my lecture today. I talked about randomness. People right. believe it's, I, I had a, another download experience, but it was, is it world random or is it non-random? Right. If you believe it's random, well, that's then the it's one world. Argument. But if it's non-random, if it's patterns, morphogenetic fields, stuff like Rupert Sheldrake talks uh -huh. about, it's a completely different world. Absolutely. Rip up all the books and start over if yeah. it's, it's non-random. And Colin had a, another story that he told that shows, the again, the connection. Like Colin is an, an experiencer. He's, he's an abductee. And he tells the story of how he was in the shower. He's going to speak at the Axe Conference for Steve Bassett. And he's in the shower. And he's enjoying the shower. And all of a sudden, this voice comes into his head and said, it's time for you to come forward. And he goes, I knew exactly what they were talking about. They didn't have to tell me what they are talking about. Right. And he says to himself, I can't do this. I can't do this. And what it was was that he, he was an experiencer. He was an abductee, and he was to come forward and tell the world. And he said, "Like I'm the scientist. I'm the guy that measures. I'm I'm Mr. Cool. I'm the you know the the electrical engineer. I can't do this. My career is over if I do this." And the voice in his head says, "No, timing is everything. You can do this." And then he said, "Well, I think I can. Yeah, maybe I can do this." And so he changes his lecture. He puts this in his lecture, and he's going to out himself as an experiencer. He goes to the X conference in Washington. And he's ready to give the lecture. He goes up on the stage to give the lecture. And this guy walks up to him. He said, looks as human as any human. And looks right through him and says, you know you have to do this, don't you? Oh, my goodness. And he said, I was just about <laughs> to ask you, had he ascertained where the voice was coming from? But I guess that revealed itself. This person, human-looking person. Well, I think, I think they use your <clears throat> voice. Like I, I was mentioning to you earlier today, I have this 
sort of high-level Hollywood guy who's now having all these experiences and stuff. And when he tells me, for example, he asked this question, if I'm talking to an alien, put something in my head that I don't know. And he said in his voice, his own voice, and he his said everything always comes in his own voice. And his own voice said biocentrics. And he was, what? What is biocentrics? And then when he goes and looks it up, it's the basic premise that consciousness is primary. Life creates the universe, not the other way around. And this whole pattern of the fact that we've got all this stuff mixed up. And there's even a chapter in a book written by Dr. Robert Lanza, mm -hmm. who wrote the book Biocentrics, a, a, a chapter on, ra on randomness. Now, I'm giving the lecture here, and I've got this whole thing about this download I had where it, one of the things that was, was, is the world random or is it non-random? Right. And suddenly I'm on the plane flying here, and here this guy who's the first guy to clone an extinct species, identified by Time Magazine as one of the top 100 people in the world, influential people I in the world. I just saw that headline, and, and, actually. And so this guy writes in his book, he's got a chapter on randomness destroying the idea that everything is random. And I'm thinking like, this is just so bizarre. I've got it in my lecture ahead. and I'm on the plane and I'm writing and reading this whole thing, so. Let's talk about synchronicity for a minute because we, you can imagine we've been chatting it up since we haven't caught it for a couple of years and we were talking offline about the synchronicity of numbers, number patterns that people are noticing. But I, I would dare say that the, the phenomenon of synchronicity in general case in point yours is increasing exponentially for so many people what role and this is kind of a big question but what role why now and you know uh, what's the significance of synchronicity being so prominent in people's lives right now and how it relates to consciousness well I think I think so, it's got to do with your level of consciousness if you're at a higher level I think you're gonna get more synchronicities uh, whereas okay. the average person wouldn't notice it or think it's significant and so we're sort of at that level where we see these sort of things and we realize this is significant. The other person say, nah, you know, it's, but we sort of- We're brushing it off as coincidence, yeah, refu yeah. refusing to Whereas see the patterns. You, yeah, and when you hear enough stories, when you're around in the UFO community or the paranormal community, you hear these stories and then you start to realize, yes, yeah, this stuff is actually going on. It is absolutely. And, and there are even just without numbers, I told a story today at a lecture about um, the Allagash um, abduction experience. Hmm. The synchronicities that are involved in this, and they say, "You think this is random? Listen to this story." So the Allagash guys, there's four musicians. Uh, they're, they're all artists, and they're young. They're teenagers. They go to the Allagash water system in Maine. They're there. They get abducted. They don't know they're abducted. They're, they see this. They they build a big fire. They go out onto the lake in the middle of the night, and this this object appears. They flash a light at the object. It starts chasing them. They're racing along, trying to get away. And the next thing they remember, they're pulling up, and the campfire is gone. It's all burnt out. And they, they go to bed, they don't, it's the old deal. They don't really talk to each other. They just, as if nothing has happened. 12 years later, nobody realizes anything happened. Just something weird, or the fire was gone or whatever. They don't know they've been abducted. 12 years later, the one guy has a very serious injury, falls through a floor. He's very badly damaged his back. He's got brain injury, whatever. And he's got a lot of medical treatment and he can't sleep. And he's in a Boston hospital and he's there and he's lying on the bed and he's, 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 he said, he's all wired up. They're trying to figure out why he can't sleep. He's all wired up. So he says to the nurse, I need something to read. Go get me something from the, from, from the, from the, the bookstore. So she goes down and guess what she brings him? The book Communion. Ah. So they bring him the book Communion. He totally freaks out. And I say, 
this is one of the triggers that the intelligence has used. And to say, if you don't believe that, all you have to do is go to Amazon.com <laughs> and look at where the book Communion is being sold and look at the comments. And people will say, when I saw that book, I knew I was abducted. He got 100, 200,000 letters well. from people that I had one woman that, that had a one-year-old baby. She said when she saw the cover of that book, she just dropped her kid. <laughs> and it was like that triggered all these people. And even the title, I'm not sure about the, the picture. I've always wanted to ask Whitley whether that was true. But the title for sure was changed. He was going to call it Body Pain because it was a very sort of body traumatic pain? body pain. It was a very traumatic story for Whitley. Yes, I know. And I know. in the middle of the night, Anne, his wife, starts channeling. She starts talking in this voice that's not her voice. And it sa and says, no, we won't call it body pain. We will call it communion. Isn't that because here we go that's again with what, the voice? Because that, that's, that's what it is. It's a communion. Yeah. So they change the name on the cover. So you have all these people activated. So this guy sees his book. He freaks out. He's, he's freaking out. And they call a psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist comes in and he says, what's the deal? Now the psychiatrist happens to be an associate of John Mack. Aha. Oh, so the guy, oh. he said, oh, they remind me of these dreams I'm having. This face reminds me of the dreams I'm having. And he says, well, Ray, Ray Fowler, who's an abductee researcher, happens to be coming to town in two weeks. Happens to be, and, of course. And, and you can meet with him. So they meet him with, and, and Fowler doesn't really want to do the case until he hears that this guy is a twin. And he goes, oh, I'm interested in twins doing uh, this, 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 this whole uh, abduction thing. He takes on the case. And then he regresses them all, and they all find out they've been regressed, and then they start telling the story of what happened. Okay. And you get these bizarre synchronicities that, that happen all over the place, that, that, you know, just bizarre, that most people uh, would, would never realize. There's one I'm thinking of with music. I'm, I'm sure not to who the musician was that, um, okay, no, it's, there's a story told by Bono. Bono is going to England, he's playing at Wembley Stadium. And he can't sleep the night before, and he's playing this tape called uh, Blue Velvet. Yeah. It's a movie, and in this, in this thing, Roy Orbison sings a song called In Dreams. And it's a song he got in, in a dream. So Roy Orbison's actually singing the song in this movie. And these guys are playing, and Robertson's singing, whatever. And so Bono can't sleep, and he's got this thing looped, and he's watching this thing over and over again. And finally, late in the morning, he falls asleep. And he gets this song in his head, and he wakes up, and he goes, wow, that's like a Roy Orbison song. And then he's thinking, wow, that's pretty good. So he goes to Wembley Stadium before the concert, and he's going he's gonna to play it for his guys. He says, this is what it sounds like, whatever. And they say, yeah, it's pretty good. You should do that song. So he plays the concert, he goes to the dressing room after the concert, and he's trying to work on this song. He's trying to get mm -hmm. the song down before he forgets it. There's a knock on the door. His security's there. And they say, Roy Orbison's here from America, and he wants to talk to you. He came to your concert, and he went, Roy Orbison's here? And he says, yeah, Roy Orbison's here. So Roy Orbison comes in, and Roy says, I loved your concert. It was fantastic. I'd love to play with you guys sometime. Do you happen to have a song I can do? And Bono says, I haven't got one this morning. As a matter of fact. <laughs> so this, that, those happen. kind of bizarre synchronicities, it's like, you I, can't make that stuff up. I think this conversation is turning into the predominance of synchronicity and how we can learn from it. Uh, I think we're going to need to do another show on, <laughs> <laughs> on, well, I mean, it's all connected. It's, it's all connected. That's what my publishing company is called. It's all connected. It's that's all connected. It's, it's there's one. there's it's nothing connected. that cannot be. I want to move, we've got about 15 minutes left, Grant, and I want to move on, staying on the theme of consciousness, uh, but 
I want to talk about a, a book that uh, you wrote an amazing forward to that I had the pleasure of narrating recently, the, the audio book that's coming out, Meet the Hybrids by Miguel Mendoza and Barbara Lamb, uh, of which eight hybrids, eight human, ET, hybrids, uh, from various parts of the world, I think primarily here in the States as well as the UK, I think in Spain as well, tell their very touching stories of how they discovered there being a hybrid. I know that's that may be a stretch for a lot of you, but I think we have to consider with all the things that Grant just told us, I think we know that anything is possible, including the reality of uh, these extraordinary individuals that are not completely human. But I want to quote you in uh, your, your the forward because it was short but very succinct in your message. We're kind of shifting now, I, I suppose, to the, this, I call the D word, disclosure. And because you are now synonymous with the work, particularly with what's happened since last December, uh, everyone uh, has disclosure. People that are focused in this field have disclosure on their mind. But you say, based on Meet the Hybrids, that, I'm gonna quote you, these hybrid stories will be the most important stories to be told in the 21st century. And I want to get your thoughts on that. Now, we're not leaving the consciousness thing because I think we were overwhelmed by reading this book and, or reading this manuscript initially and understanding that consciousness was the common theme in these hybrid stories, yes? Mm -hmm. Why will these stories be the most important told in the 21st century, yeah. in your opinion? It would be hybrids and experiencer people. Because yes, of course. Because, because what, of course. What, what happens is that because we live in the, in the material paradigm, Everybody wants to measure things, they want to see things. So people spend their time like looking at lights in the sky or videos or, and that sort of stuff. And basically, that, all that will tell you is something's going on and we probably didn't build it. That's all it's going to tell you. It's not going to tell you, it's like you, you see a, like a clear flying saucer 100 yards away and it flies by. Where'd it come from? What's the message? Why is it here? I mean, that doesn't tell you anything. It's not until you actually talk to the people who are interacting with the phenomena. And there's no doubt that there are, whatever, 2%, 5%, lots of people are interacting with whatever this phenomena is, whatever Absolutely. this intelligence is. And what I say is you have to talk to these people. You have to interact with these people because they're the ones that, when they start telling you that 42% of them have mathematical, technical, or scientific material in their head that they did not learn, yes. when you get 40% of them say at one point during their experience, they knew the answer to everything in the universe. Absolutely. You start looking at it and you say, and what people in the other part, the, para, the material paradigm will say, oh, they just believe. I mean, they just believe. They think, they think they're talking to an alien. They're not really talking to an alien. They're not really not a hybrid or whatever. And basically, that's the old idea, I know and you believe, which is exactly the opposite. It's like everything is belief. Yeah. And, and uh, so these people have this material. and. Why would you ignore them? And the UFO community, I believe, has ignored these people. They've sort of moved them to the side. No question about and, that. And, and even if you are skeptical, give them lie detector tests, do whatever you've got to do. If 10% of those people are telling the truth, this That's is what's going on. They're the ones that are talking. They're the ones that are, whatever the, this intelligence is doing, uh, who these people are, whether they're hybrids or, or just having an experience, whatever, this is what the only way you're going to get and I call it so it's the it's almost like the Rosetta Stone mm -hmm. you, you've got to go through these people they have this mental connection with it they'll bring in the consciousness aspect they'll explain what that's all about they'll explain what the message is whether it's nuclear weapons whether it's uh, uh, you know environmental all this sort of stuff 
and you can weed through it. And there's thousands of these people who have filled out surveys of 675 That's questions. right. And we know that FREE, the, the Foundation yeah. for Research into Extraterrestrial Encounters, is one of those that's collected uh, stunning data in that regard. Yeah. 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 So there's something going on here. And you know, this has to bring me, th this almost brings us full circle, Grant, because when we began, began the conversation, you were telling the story about uh, how uh, the American government informed the Canadian government, and obviously in a, in a larger way, I'm just bringing it down to the bottom line, that flying saucers are about mental phenomena. It's about mental phenomena, and it's not about metal craft using uh, traditional propulsion methods to get from here to there. Ergo, there's consci it's consciousness. And when you think about all of the measures that have, we can imagine that have been taken to hide the reality of this phenomenon from the masses, it makes me wonder, what is it that they want to hide? The enormity of what consciousness is and the fact that we're all connected to it? That could be part. I think the, the, the bottom line is that the people who are doing most, in order to do, if you're in the government, in order to do the research, you need money. And the only people that have the money or the interest are military people who see this as a threat. So they you see it spend, as a threat. So, so you, if you, if you say go to the Department of Agriculture, they'll go, like, get out of here. I don't care if there's you know, intelligence coming here. Any department. And nobody's really interested except for the military because they can weaponize it. And that's the scary part is yes. with, almost like the 1950s, this top secret memo. 60 miles down the road, six months later, I think it was six months later, after that memo was written, that's when MKUltra started at McGill University Isn't in Montreal. And so when I see the MKUltra stuff, I don't see them as trying to drug people and do all this sort of stuff. What they're trying to do is they're trying to figure out how does this consciousness thing work? Because I believe, and I'm just guessing, that where the, the, the mental phenomena thing came from in the top secret memo, how did the Americans know in 1950? Because there's no aliens, there's no contactees, there was no abductees, there was nobody. How did they know? And it may have been because they had a live alien at Roswell, New Mexico. So if you have the alien at Roswell, New Mexico, and it's talking in people's heads, they go like, whoa, could we weaponize this? Could we use this for intelligence? Always about weaponizing. And, 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 and so that's where the money comes from. And that's why I think it always goes to the military, because they're the only ones that will fund the programs. Because it takes a lot of money to run these, these programs, whether it's intelligence doing MKUltra, or whether it's military trying to weaponize. But, and that's why I say to the UFO community, you may be scared of it. Let me absolutely guarantee you they're going to weaponize it. That's what it's all about. That's the way it's worked since World War II. You first, the military develop it, set in like GPS. You develop it for the military, then you spin it off into the, the public. And it's always worked that way, so that's the way it's going to continue to work. I don't really think there's anything we can do to stop them. They are, maybe already have weaponized this, this type of material. So that's the way they see it. But that's the onus is on us to tell the other side of the story, yeah. to get the, the spiritual implications of this thing, the consciousness thing, and counter that thing. You can't, I can't really stop them from doing whatever they're going to do. They have the money, they have the power, but we have power to do, get the message out. Always do. Yeah. What's the feeling that you're getting? Because you've really been rocking this consciousness, and I don't mean to belittle it at all. It's the biggest aspect uh, to me as well. But what's the feedback that you've been getting from the people, even some, I'm sure, who perhaps were uh, their entry point into uh, um, this field was what lured them into this field. Maybe I should say is the lights in the sky and the curiosity factor. What, what's your? What do you think the consensus is from the public on the consciousness? Are they happy on the consciousness aspect? Are they happy to hear you talking more about it? Do they want to stick with the, the more mechanistic or? No, it's actually um, not that. I mean, a little bit better, but not that well received, especially after. Really? I first, oh, I had people say. 
Um, the one huh. broadcaster said, I can't believe you've gone over to the Woo Woo site. You used Isn't to be the document guy. And, and I said, well, I didn't go. I was pulled over there. So what I find is that the UFO community still won't accept this. They still, because what, what it is, is it's the same thing. It's funding. You need funding. You mm. need respect. Everybody's like, we're the Rodney Dangerfield of the scientific world. We need respect. So you don't want to go to this thing. You want to be with the scientists. And the scientists are still in this materialistic paradigm. Right. It's a random, meaningless universe. It's all accidental, all this kind of stuff. So they want to appease the scientists. Well, so, of course. So they go, they go down that road. Right. And they try to stay away from us. Right. That's where they get into the thing. Don't call it UFO. Don't call it ET. They're sort well, of well. You know, they've changed the name now to UAP. Yeah, of course, and right? that's the whole yeah. thing. We're trying to appease the materialists. Yes. And what I find the, the power comes from is from the people. Like people will come to me after the lecture and they'll say, "I had this experience," and that's where it's coming from. It's coming from the bottom up. Well, that, that's who I'm talking about. I'm actually not talking about the field. Maybe I should have been clear. Uh, the people in the field of ufology, but rather the lay people that maybe their interest initially that brought them in was the the more mechanistic, but net. What was the consensus that you got from the people in the audience today, as an example? Because I know the consciousness aspect was a part, was sort of threaded throughout your talk. Yeah. What kind of feedback are you getting from the lay people about that? Well, it'll be the people who have had the, the experiences, who, will, who have never talked about it and will come forward. Who have never I, talked about it. And I have actually that. started a, a group, and, and I don't run it any longer, but I have started a group, it was called Experiences Anonymous, mm. where you provide a platform, and if you've ever been to UFO Congress, they used to have the experiencer sessions, and they always have them at 8 o'clock in the morning, so nobody can see them go in there. <laughs> They're out by 9 o'clock in the morning, and that sort of thing. And there used to be, you know, 20 people. Now it's like 150. There's two rooms. You have to have two moderators to run this thing. And these people are in there, and they're opening up. And you have more and more people opening up. And that's where this consciousness thing, the more we talk about it, the more acceptable it becomes for people to say, I've had this experience. They're doing it in the, in the, in the groups now. I say we're no different than any other social or political movement. Mm -hmm. It's almost like we're gays in the closet of the 1960s. Mm -hmm. And as more and more people come forward, it goes up and you're going to get to a point where suddenly the consciousness is to a point where everybody's going to go, yeah, I've heard those stories about people telepathic. I know all that stuff. It's, it's going to become old hat. It's not like yeah. you're a crazy person anymore. But it takes that sort of thing. So I don't, uh, I don't really think that we need any special attention. We just need to talk about it as much as we can, Absolutely. raise it up. Because I don't think we're any different. It's sort of like we want somebody to do something for us. So whether it was African-American rights or, or civil rights or gays or whatever it is, those people have to move this thing up. This is our job. This is what we're here to do. No doubt. And then when you get it to a certain point, then everybody will jump on the bandwagon. And that's what Stephen Greer was told and Fox were told when they went up on the Hill to try to get congressmen and senators. The one congressman, I think he told Greer, he said, we need some backing. We need you to give us some backing if we're to come. We agree with you. You get the parade going, and when you get the parade going, we'll lead the parade. And that's what it comes down to. It's like everybody's sort of afraid to, to be there, but as it goes along, it becomes more and more acceptable to talk about it. Even in the UFO community, many people are now talking about consciousness. They're, not, they're using the word, but they're not still there yet. There's only a couple of us that are sort of in that world, but I think the time will come, and I don't think it's, it, we're any different than anything else. I have a job to do to do what I can to raise the consciousness and, and I implore the people who come to me out of the audience to say, you have, have you written your story down? Have you written it down? Because yes. you may think you're crazy or whatever, but 500 years from now, your great, great, great grandchildren will say, that was my grandmother, that was my grandfather, that was, and sure. this is, people got to realize that if you understand the consciousness aspect, the idea that this is not just, 
ETs, that this has got to do with how reality works. We are in the Super Bowl of all stories. Agreed. And people have to realize, you didn't get to, as I always tell the story, you didn't get to be an untouchable in the streets of Calcutta and spend your days in a junkyard looking for something valuable enough to sell for food for tomorrow. You got to play in the Super Bowl. And you better realize you're in the Super Bowl and that this is this magnificent story and you, you've got a role. You've got something to do and get busy. You may be the water boy, you may be the quarterback, you're in the stadium. You should realize you're in the stadium. Instead of whining about, oh, it's not going well, or this is not, you're in the game. You have a role, especially if it's multiple lives. If it's one life, it's one thing. If it's multiple lives, then you agreed to come in here and do something. And all you have to do is worry about is, I was born, I'm going to die, and when I die, I, I'm a big fan of Michael Newton, the, did the mm. 7,000 regressions. You only, get asked, you only get asked one question. How did it work out? How did it work because out? you planned it. And you're not going to be able to stand up there and say, oh, I would have done something. If there had been disclosure, I would have done something. I mean, if, if the president had done something, I would have done something. Uh, if my mother-in-law hadn't, you know, got me upset. You know, if the dog ate, ate my homework, right. and they're going to go, time out, time out. It's about you. What did you do? So all I say to people is, all you have to worry about it is I came into this world to do something. When I leave, I'm going to be asked, how did it work out? All you got to do is figure out, why am I here? And what am I supposed to be doing? And am I doing it? Forget about what everybody else is doing. It's about me. It's about what is my contribution. I'm in the Super Bowl trying to figure out what am I supposed to do and do it. I love that analogy. We are in the Super Bowl. Yeah. And it has gone into overtime for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's best to end on that note so we can kind of marinate in that. That is a fantastic analogy. Uh, there is a game aspect too, I suppose we can get into, but we'll have to save that for another time. Beautiful. Um, People need to go to presidentialufo.com, A? Yes. Is that what they say in Canada? A? A, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to invite everyone to go there. And, and go there often because you, again, this frenetic pace that you have, I have to, we, we usually are pretty good in communicating with email, but I had to chase this guy this time. <laughs> I think it was three or four emails, and I think by the fourth one I'm like, just forwarding the, the same message. Did you get my Did you get my yeah. email? But I'm so grateful that you well, took some time I, out of your busy schedule. I appreciate busy you're having the time. Oh, and, I, and helping raise the message. You're helping me raise. We're the message all, we're all in this it. together, yeah, and it's only just begun. I think we're about to get into some really exciting times. So, beautiful. Grant Cameron, I thank, thank you. you so beautiful, so much. Beautiful. Carry on. We're thank in the you. Super Bowl, gang. Let's <laughs> win. Okay. Thanks, everyone. Take care.